The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's, this morning's scripture reading comes from Acts in the ninth chapter. We'll read verses 20 through 31. As you are able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's word. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, it's good to be with y'all. I'm Chris Bowen. And we began this journey in Acts on August the 22nd. We had, we're nine chapters in of a 28-chapter account. And it's this section that we come to this morning, it's it's a conclusion. Uh, You see that with verse... 31. It's a conclusion of an introduction, of, of a setting of the stage, and really the conclusion of the first and second acts in terms of a play. And so we look at this passage, we revisit what we began last week, looking at the conversion of Saul, and we kind of close this first section uh, because next week we enter into Advent and we celebrate the coming of Christ and longing for the second coming of Christ. And Acts is a reminder that we live in the space between those. Just as the apostles and the early church were in the space between the first and second coming of Christ, so we're in that same space, though a few years removed. And so this morning as we look, we're going to be, as a way of situating ourselves, uh, look briefly at a couple of points from last week. We're looking at Saul's conversion and Saul's commission. Uh, I like alliteration. I could not think of a third C. 
So I changed it to ease, and so we're going to look at those here in a second. How Jesus engaged or encountered, uh, Saul encountered Jesus, and then Saul experienced Jesus, and we're going to see how Saul is engaged by Jesus. So I had to switch so I could have my alliteration. Um, but in that, what I want us to look at, just kind of a, a preface, one of the things I have has really changed the, my understanding in reading of the Bible was a trip that I took in 2006 or 2005 to Jerusalem. I went over to Israel. I got to tour the Holy Land. It was, it was a group of folks from our church. I saw how far away things were. I, I began to note distances. And I began to note when I read the Bible when it would talk about things like when many days had passed. Because up to that point, and even now, when I, when I read into the passage, I, I just think it's clicking off at a very tight, sequential order. What we'll find in this text is that's not necessarily the case. And so that's very helpful, very helpful for us. Because we live in a culture that idolizes the instantaneous. We don't like to wait for anything. We get upset at slow internet. But there was a comedian talking about how he was on a flight that now offered Wi-Fi. And as he sat experiencing the marvel of flight... He was frustrated because internet on that flight was not working. And so often that's characteristic of our own hearts. And it's characteristic of our own hearts when we come to the gospel. And that's where the Lord needs to work on us. And when we look at this passage, it's where the Lord is working on Saul. And so how did Saul encounter Jesus? We looked last week. He was on the road to Damascus, a six-day journey. He had received letters from the high priest, the Sanhedrin, that he was to go and bind to bring back Christians. Because the gospel had gone forward into Damascus, modern-day Syria, and, and we saw the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. The power of the Spirit had rushed upon the early church. There were thousands converted in its early weeks. And that had spread out. And Saul was furious. He didn't like it at all. And so his contribution was to persecute the church. To snuff it out in his zeal. And so he was moving out in, in persecution. He had uh, consented to the death of Stephen, one of the first deacons we find in Acts 6. His death was in Acts 8, and, and there Paul held the jackets as this young Christian proclaiming the gospel with the power of the Spirit was put to death. And then in that very moment, not too long had passed, that he was on at Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was struck blind. He finished his travels into Damascus, and he went to the house of Judas, the text says. A different Judas than Iscariot. It was a common name. And there a man named Ananias was obedient to a vision 
from the Lord and, and a call upon the Lord to go and to befriend Saul. The scales fell from his eyes. He saw and he received from the Lord a vision of what he was to do. In that passage, it says that he was a chosen instrument for the Lord to carry forth his name to the Gentiles and that he would suffer. And that is a bit of a thesis statement for the Apostle Paul. So we pick up in verse 20 and what happens? Paul who's zealous, who's strong-willed, who's wildly educated and understand the Scriptures. He's had the Damascus Road experience. We, we've adopted that in our own vernacular. And what does he do? He immediately goes out. He immediately, the text is very intentional in noting that, that he goes out and proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. I was wrong. Jesus was right. He goes to his brothers, those whom he has labored with, he has served with, and he wants to share this, this new discovery that has been given to him by the Lord. And what does it tells us? It says, all who heard were amazed. Now, a little bit of a license. I think they were amazed at the proclamation of the gospel. I think that what they were also amazed at who the messenger was. And it's interesting because the text moves in and it says, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? There is a very real chance that these folks were utterly astounded at this new convert and his bold proclamation of the gospel and that Jesus was the Messiah. It is a very real chance that Saul, in his zeal, was becoming a distraction to God's mission. He was something of a spectacle, if you will. And oftentimes in the church, what we do is we'll find a dramatic conversion. And what do we do? We immediately push them to the front. We immediately push them to the front. We say, look at what happened. Tell your story, and it's great. But that isn't always the way God wills it in the economy of his kingdom. Paul, in experiencing this, it says he increased in strength, and he confounded the Jews. He was wickedly smart. He had all the finest degrees from all of the finest schools in this day and age and had been tutored and mentored by the greatest of teachers. There are few that were sharper than Saul of Tarsus. And so he was confounding them. And it was, he was proving that Jesus was the Christ from the Scriptures. Now here's where I want you to see the time. Verse 23. When many days had passed. I don't know how you define many. I think of it more than three, <laughs> but less than, say, a hundred. I don't, I don't know what I would call a hundred. Yes, many, 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 very many. And Paul, in this little exchange with the verse, is where I want to situate ourselves this morning. Because Paul, because of his letters, having writ a, a half of the letters of the New Testament and a quarter of its volume, tells us in his other letters what's going on. 
And in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 17, he's writing of his own personal ministry to this church that he's planted. And he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That aligns with our text this morning. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. A number of commentators who investigated this show that this passage between verse 22 and verse 23, many days, means three years. Three years that Jesus engages Saul. He's moved from showing himself as a resurrected Christ to him. He, he moves from experiencing his grace through the community to the schoolhouse of the gospel of grace. Paul goes out into Arabia. What's significant about Arabia? It's the wilderness. It's a difficult place. It's removed from the hustle of life. It's a place of solitude and silence. But even more than that, it's the place where Moses, after 40 years of, of growing up in Egypt, thinking that he's something, is broken in his own story, and he is sent out into the wilderness of Arabia. And for 40 years, Moses is discipled by the Lord in the same place where Saul is discipled for three years. Moses, if you follow his arc, he moves back into Egypt after this time within the schoolhouse of God's grace being discipled by the Lord. And it's in that place that he goes back and we see God move in the Exodus and bringing out the children of Israel from their bondage and delivering them. We see that God tends to slow us down when we get in a hurry. For Joseph, it was 13 years in a prison. Even Jesus, the God-made flesh, 30 years in obscurity. He's sitting and being prepared and being discipled and he's learning God's word. So what was Jesus doing in sending out Saul into Arabia? The first thing I think he was doing is this. Jesus was engaging Saul to teach him who he was. Jesus was engaging Saul to teach Saul who Saul was. If you look at other passages of scriptures, Paul's pedigree gave him something to boast about. But as we find in Philippians 3, Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was a man of tremendous pride. He was a man of tremendous accomplishment. He was a man of the, the finest Jewish pedigree. How do we know that? Paul tells us. 
He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the reason he's named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had a chip on his shoulder. Paul walked around with an air about him, of his moral fortitude, of his ability to work harder, to do more. He walked around as one who relied on his own flesh, his own mental acumen from his years in the school of Gamaliel, learning all the things of the Torah. He would beat you hands down in a scripture memory contest. Paul had a lot to brag about in the economy of the world's standard. But Jesus was taking Paul out into the wilderness so that he would learn who he was. It's interesting to note in the life of Saul, this name that that, that gave assent to the first king of Israel. That later, he shifts his name to Paul. Now, there's reason for this. Paul, Paulus, is a Greek name. It gave him a lot more traction with the Gentiles, those whom he was calling to serve. But do you know what Paulus means? It means small. There was a shift going on, even from that Damascus Road experience, that he moved from seeing himself as the tribe of Benjamin, one in the line of the King Saul, to being one who was small, a Paul. In this, Paul goes out into the wilderness, the place where Moses received the law. And Paul knew the law. But he went out in that same place in order to experience Jesus' grace. The British have a saying. He has his edges. What they mean by that is he's a bit full of himself. He lacks in soft skills. He struggles in the company of others. That phrase is one that I've always thought about because it identifies me as well. And a few years ago, we were cleaning out my in-law's home. We found this little rock tumbler. It said it had all the, the solutions and solvents in it, and we brought it home. There was this little package of jagged little rocks The end goal is that they would be smoothed over through this process and that you could make some jewelry. My girls thought that was a great idea. So I was amazed at how we took this little red cylinder and filled it up as it was specified with water, and then we poured in a particular abrasive substance. We put in the rocks and we let them tumble. 
Three days passed. When I opened that red cylinder, there was a black goop from where those rocks had been rubbing together and rounding off and with that abrasive material turning. You might think that's great and that we were ready to produce gems. Oh, no. We had to put in stage two of a lighter abrasive. And it turned for three weeks in my garage, a little electric motor and turning this red cylinder every time I would go in. At the end of three weeks, I went in out there. I opened the red cylinder. And do you know what I saw? A black goop. I poured out the black goop. And then what did I do? I poured in a third packet. Uh, it was the polisher. I filled it up. I put in the stones that were beginning to look smooth. And I turned it on again for another week. My children had completely lost interest in this process. I was the only one still, still involved. At the end of another week, we're, we're, we're nearly a month into this process. I open up the red cylinder. Guess what I found? Black goop. I poured it out, and after this final time, and we're cleaning off these stones, they had moved from rough, jagged, kind of ugly yard stones to being quite nice little gems. I carry one of those stones with me. It was with me last night at the football game and didn't make it into these pants this morning. I put my hand in my pocket and I'll touch that stone because what it reminds me of how I need to lose my edges, how I need to experience God's grace, how I need my edges knocked off. The way that that happens is that we experience God in the wilderness. We experience God in the wilderness and we experience Him around His Word and in prayer. That's God's rock tumbler. That's how we are smoothed out and how we are sanctified. It's how we learn who we are. It's how we're equipped for service. But not only did Saul learn who he was, he learned who Jesus was as well. For he went out thinking of how great he was. And like Isaiah, he caught a vision of God and his splendor and his holiness. And he said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And if the Lord had let Isaiah alone in that, he would have been justified. But the Lord intercedes and sends out his angel with a hot coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And it's like a, a justification, a, a cleansing. And that's what Paul was experiencing. It was a tender and severe mercy. He was understanding what we've been experiencing in reading the book Gentle and Lowly. That his... Yoke is easy and his burden is light. He was understanding Jesus in a different way, in a new way, in a way that he never imagined, but in a way that was far greater than he had thought. 
He was understanding what it meant to suffer as he considered the person of Jesus and his life and his ministry and his ridicule, the way he was ostracized by the community and ultimately hung on a cross to die. In learning who Jesus was and learning that Jesus had to suffer, he had to learn that he had to surrender. He understood the heart of Christ, the one who goes into the garden, who says, not my will, but thine being done, and submits to his Father. Paul was learning that it wasn't all about him, but it was about Jesus. It's interesting that we find this passage that he later cites in 2 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about his weakness of being lowered down by a basket. He thought he was going to move in with great fanfare. He, who had persecuted the church, now was getting a dose of his own medicine. And so much so, in fear for his own life, he had to be lowered down from a wall in a basket alone by those people whom he had persecuted. If I'm in that basket, you know what I think? You know, this would be a good time to drop me. Do you know what I've done to them? But he received grace. He experienced forgiveness, both from Jesus and from his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul had to learn who he was. But the only way he could truly know who he was was by understanding who Jesus is. This is what John Calvin tells us in the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that true wisdom is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Theologians have debated which of those comes first. It's not so much which comes first. It's both of them held in tension together. Because it's in that that our edges are knocked off and we understand who Jesus is. Moving along, we, not only does he understand those things of who he is and who Jesus is, but he begins to understand God's plan for his people through his church. Barnabas, who we saw earlier in Acts 4, previously called Joseph, but was a son of encouragement, comes and meets Paul. It's absolutely fascinating. He meets Paul. I don't want us to miss this. He says, but Paul took him and brought him to the apostles. Paul intercedes and is a mediator, or Barnabas intercedes and is a mediator for Saul. Why? Because they were all skeptical of him. They thought it was a trap. And the church was trying to protect the apostles because the last thing they wanted to do was for the, the, the zealots to jump out and come and get all the apostles and persecute them. But Barnabas takes a chance. And he goes and the text tells us that he tells Saul's story to the apostles. Do you know how he's able to do it? This is really simple. Barnabas had to listen to it first. Barnabas had to sit with Saul. And listen to Saul's story. And, Saul, and Barnabas wasn't so amazed 
at Saul's story as he was amazed by God's grace. And so Barnabas goes and advocates for Saul, not because it's a great story, but because it's the same grace that he's experienced in his life. And he says, men, you have got to hear this guy. And it says there's this great concern and he interacts and, and, and they're so concerned because of the plot for Paul. What happens? They send him back to Tarshish. They send him away. This is the last time we hear about Paul for a couple of chapters. Then it tells us that there was a peace within the church. It doesn't tell us persecution went away. It says there was a peace and it was built up. And that they were multiplying. Multiplying in their faith. Multiplying in the gospel of grace. Now there's a lot in this passage that we could pull out for days. But understanding that God slows us down to prepare us for his service is the big takeaway today. You see, when God wants to do an amazing task, he doesn't yell out to us, hurry up, you're late. Now, when God is working on an amazing task, what he does is he takes broken and difficult Christians and he refines them. It may be that he even benches them. And sometimes we sit there in that space and we say, I've been benched. I'm out of the game. I'm off the field. Jesus, what are you doing? I thought you had grand plans for me. Well, you might be off the field, but you're still on the team. And he's looking for that moment when you've learned what you've needed to learn, that ultimately it's not about you. (laughs) It's about Jesus. And then he puts you back in, and he does something with you. God always takes us to the end of ourselves before He's willing to use us. He always takes us to the end of ourselves before He's going to use us. If you're like my kids on any car ride, they want to know one of two things. Is this a short ride or a long ride? And a lot of times that's the question we ask God. Is this a short ride or is this a long ride? Which one's it going to be? The reality is it doesn't matter. We're with Jesus. And he's taking us someplace. And so it's in those moments that we can miss the blessing because we're so overwhelmed with what we think we would do. Samuel Rutherford said, When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Being lowered through a basket is not what Paul thought he was going to be doing. Being sent back to Tarshish, being persecuted, and having everyone around him skeptical of him is not the fanfare that he thought he was going to receive. But he suffered and he surrendered. And he slowed down, focusing on knowing Christ and understanding his word. And he did that before attempting to go out and fix things. 
Because in understanding and knowing the grace, he understood he didn't fix. Men, I'm just going to lump us all in the category. We're all guilty of that. We just want to fix problems. We just want to make them go away and make this feel better. Paul had to understand there was a process. And he had to trust the process. And he had to submit, surrender, and slow down. The next time Paul appears in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 25, eight to ten years have passed. So from the Damascus Road experience to Acts 11, when he is, again, Paul, Barnabas goes and finds him and asks for him to come help. 11 to 13 years have passed. God is refining. He is restoring. And He is is equipping us to go out and do His work. And so wherever you are today, and however you entered into this space, it doesn't matter how slow the process is or how you might... Uh, Feel as if your candle's burning at both ends with the Lord's kingdom work. You are right where God wants you to be. It might be the crucible of affliction. That he's trying to get out all the black goop. (laughs) To make you into a, a polished stone. It might be that you're that polished stone. Adorning a neck or an ear made into earrings used for his handiwork. We're all in process. So we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to speak the gospel to ourselves. And it's in that that we truly know who we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't let us run at our own pace. We would wear ourselves out and burnout before we got around the first bend. But Lord, you slow us down. You journey with us. You minister to us with your word and by your spirit, and you commune with us through prayer and at this table before us. Lord, as we enter into this season, there's a swirl of things in our own hearts. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a posture of gratitude posture of surrendering or a posture of submission or that we would learn the things you desire for us to learn and Lord that we would see Jesus or continue your work as you have promised don't leave us as you have found us but hone us and knock off our edges so that we would be use for you in your mission and in this kingdom bring glory to your name. We pray these things because of our Savior who loved us first. Amen.